It's my pleasure to introduce our main speaker, Candace from Long Beach. Right? Good evening, my name is Candace Moore and I'm an alcoholic. I uh, want to thank uh, the absentee Bob D for uh, allowing me to come and participate. I was here three years ago and uh, so much has happened since then. And uh, um, TJ and Jeff uh, for picking me up from the airport for maybe coming back. I was supposed to have come earlier today and I missed my flight, which is always fun. And so we got it worked out. And uh, hi, Jeff. Thank you very much. Anywho, you know, uh, I am to share in a general way what it used to be like, what happened, and what it's like now. And uh, I'll tell you something. If you're new, I want to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous and share with you that you have just been given the keys of the kingdom. But I also want to share with you that this is a program of action. It is not a program of whether or not I feel like it. You know, it's been a, a rough couple of weeks, and I, and I knew, I mean, I've known for a few months that I was coming here, and you know, you always want to be in the spiritual zone when you're going to give a talk, and sometimes it just, you can't pull it off, you know? And I thought, well, wear a good suit, you know what I mean? And, um, <laughs> and so uh, a couple of nights ago, I, you know, I mean, I just have whined to Clancy like more than I'm sure he wants to. Every time he hears a measure, he probably goes, oh, you know? But uh, a couple of nights ago, I did some writing, and it started to lift, you know, and just utilizing all the tools, but just been in a a deep, dark place. And of course, when I'm in my drama, you know, I go to my sponsor, very Diana Ross in mahogany, you know what I mean? And just ready with the hole and anywho. So, just wanted to share that with you because I'm, at, I'm up here and I have the mic and I just wanted to do that. But um, uh, three things that I want to share, they are so very important for me, a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. The first is my sobriety date, August 16, 1995. I have 10 continuous years of sobriety. And for an alcoholic of my type, that time is an absolute eternity. When I came to you, I wasn't looking for anything continuous. When I came to you, I was tired of how I lived out there as an alcoholic woman. And the only thing I was looking for was a nap and a bite to eat. That's it. You know, when I came to you, I was 96 pounds because when I drink, I enhance my drinking with things that keep me up for eight and nine days straight. And I like it like that. And uh, so as a result, let's say a, a, a nutritious meal for me was like a Snickers bar every three days, you know, and uh, hence the rapid weight decline. And uh, when I came to you, I was missing my front tooth because I'm a mouthy little alcoholic. And apparently, apparently someone begged to differ with something I had to share. And so, uh, you know, and when I came to you, I didn't have a strand of hair on my head. Because when I drink, I start to enhance my drinking with things that produce a tweaking sensation. And so um, <laughs> I thought something was running around in there. You know what I mean? And I envisioned myself as a problem solver. So I, I identified the problem. I quickly outlined a course of action. And uh, a friend of mine had told me that rubbing alcohol will sterilize anything. And so... You know, I would start drinking and, and doing my thing. They would start doing their thing. And so I sat them down. I talked to them. I said, look, I know you're up there, okay? You can stay, but I'm going to sterilize you. And so, uh, <laughs> and so 
when I would start to drink, they would start doing their thing. They had been warned. And so I would pour rubbing alcohol all over my head. And it was soothing, really. And then, and then after a while, they became immune to it, like a roach becomes immune to raid. And so uh, I needed to take far more drastic measures. I took the scissors. I cut off all my hair. I took a shaver and shaved it to the scalp. I would wear T-shirts on my head like they were fashionable turbans, you know? making my own statement, and uh, it was quite the vision, I can assure you. In any event, that's the condition in which I came to you, and I am grateful. If I would have had one more silk blouse, I would not have come into Alcoholics Anonymous. I do not believe you have to lose everything in order to come here surrendered, but for me, it was absolutely necessary that I come to you in that condition because at that point in my life, all illusions, all delusions, and all facades have been stripped from me. The reason I continue to stay in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous is that through application of all 12 principles, all 12 traditions which are vital to the survival not only of Alcoholics Anonymous but to my day-to-day living, being comfortable in my own skin, through those applications I'm able to stay here right-sized. You know, when I tell you that I've just come out of a dark period, I uh, want to share the second thing with you. My sponsor, his name is Clancy, and I love and I respect my sponsor. I went to him over a year ago uh, because I had come through a very tough period. I had come through a very tough period where my sobriety had been jeopardized by my own behaviors. And it was a hard deal. It was hard for me to come out of it. I've always been very active in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I went through it very publicly, and I behaved ungraciously. You know what I mean? That's like control and enjoy your drinking. Why do I need to control it? Well, why do I need to be gracious? You know what I mean? I'm in pain. And so uh, (laughs) when I came out of it, you know, it just... Something just wasn't clicking back in to shape. And so I, I went to Clancy, and, uh, and it's been the best move that I could have made. And, you know, recently we were having some conversations. I told you I was going through this, and I kept calling him and whining and whining. And so he had me do some things, had me put some things down on paper. And it's a hard deal, you know, at, at almost ten and a half years sober to look at behaviors that I've been working on since I came here. It's hard, and it's painful. Because I didn't come to Alcoholics Anonymous and just sit on my butt for like a couple of years and then ease into the steps. I came to you devastated by the disease of alcoholism. I came to you looking for some type of solution. I did not come here looking for a car, for a cute partner, for a good job. I came here looking for a way to be comfortable in my own skin and not have to take a drink and continue to put my life in jeopardy each and every day because of how I live once I take a drink. That's why I came to you. I got into the work immediately, and, you know, all this time later, these things on paper were on paper a few years ago. What do I need to do? How bad does it need to get? You know, and I, uh, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that he has been sober longer than I. I'm grateful that he continues to put Alcoholics Anonymous first. What he demonstrates to me, what anyone that has gone before me that continues to be active in Alcoholics Anonymous demonstrates to me is that this is not a program where I come here, get my pot of gold, and then split. You know, in the big book, it says that our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depend upon our constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. That means that this is not all about me. This is about me getting into a fit spiritual condition so that I can make it about you. And, you know, who does it perfectly? I don't know. 
Third thing I want to share with you is my home group. It is a Pacific group. For the majority of my sobriety, it was the Bellflower Big Book group, which is also a very active group in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've only ever known active sobriety, and I am so grateful. It is because of that that I've been able to weather the storms that I have come, the storms that will surely come if you stay here with us. But this program will give you a solution. You know, I want to um, I want to read this because I... I just find it fascinating. I remember when I uh, got sober and I went through a recovery home, and, you know, very important, I made clear the distinction that a recovery home is in no way connected to Alcoholics Anonymous. But what a recovery home did for me is it allowed me to get still and be safe long enough so that I could hear the message of Alcoholics Anonymous brought in by sober members. And that I don't know if you have them in Nevada, but on H&I panels, of which I'm also a long-time active member of. And I remember I was like 50 or 60 days sober, and we had this 12 and 12 meeting, and they were reading from Tradition 3. Now, I had just barely was about to get into the steps. My sponsor wanted to wait until I got into the sober living portion. But I remember loving Alcoholics Anonymous. I loved it because for like... For 50 days, I hadn't been doing the things that I was doing prior to coming to you. I had been waking up in a clean bed, in safe surroundings, with people that weren't trying to harm me, that wanted nothing from me. And it felt good. And um, they were talking about, this portion that I'm going to share with you talks about when Alcoholics Anonymous was very new. It's on page 140 in the 12 and 12. It says, we were resolved to admit nobody to AA, but that hypothetical class of people we termed pure alcoholics except for their guzzling and the unfortunate results thereof, they could have no other complications. So beggars, tramps, asylum inmates, prisoners, queers, plain crackpots, and fallen women were definitely out. It says, yes, sir, we cater only to pure and respectable alcoholics. Any others would surely destroy us. Now, I don't know about you, but chances are, if I'm pure and respectable, I ain't alcoholic. <laughs> you know, and, and then they're saying, whoo, beggar, tramp, prick, queer, tramp, fallen, whoo. I'm four out of five right there, <laughs> you know. So if they had all these things in place, I would never have had an opportunity to come to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, sit amongst you, and have the opportunity of, of these 12 steps. But if you hang in there with me and we go to the top of page 141, it says, could we then foresee that troublesome people were to become our principal teachers of patience and tolerance? Could any then imagine a society which would include every conceivable kind of character and cut across every barrier of race, creed, politics, and language with ease? Now they're talking about the Alcoholics Anonymous, I know. Now they're just talking about the language of the heart. It does not matter where you work, what your religious affiliation is, if you have one, what your sexual preference is, if you figured it out. It doesn't matter. You know what I mean? You know, first couple of years is etchy. You know, we don't care. But if you have a desire to stop drinking, you are welcome. But again, I tell you, this is not a program of whether or not I feel like it. This has got to be a program of action. You know, it talks about it in step one in the 12 and 12. Uh, On the last page, uh, it says, why all this insistence that every AA must hit bottom first? And then it goes on to say that few people will sincerely try to practice the remaining 11 steps unless they've hit bottom. And it asks, like, a lot of questions. Who wishes to be rigorously honest and confesses faults and make restitution for harm done? 
who? <laughs> I don't know. You know what I mean? And it says, no, the average alcoholic, self-centered in the extreme, doesn't care for this prospect unless he has to do these things in order to stay alive himself. See, that's me. I'm not making restitution to you because I don't owe you. Unless you have me on videotape, I didn't do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Confess faults. <laughs> what fault? <laughs> what are you talking about, you know? Let, prayer and meditation. Well, when I'm untreated, I am God. I am the Alpha and the Omega. You need to get clear, you know? It's deep. I so need Alcoholics Anonymous. I can't give it to you. I mean, I'd love to be one of those people that get up and I'm just demure. <laughs> I like those people who talk about what is humility. Every time they, they ask that question, I go, what is it? You know what I mean? And, and I think, you know, like, that quiet moment, that was it right there. You know, um, it's not me. But I'm the best that I can be at any given moment, I'll tell you that. You know, and I, I give you all that I got. When I was little, my grandmother raised me. My grandmother loved me. I know what it's like to be loved and made to feel so safe and so secure that absolutely nothing could harm me. I know what it's like to have that type of unconditional love because I have had it. I remember when I was little, I was afraid of the dark, and at night I slept next to my grandmother. And as she slept, I would watch her breathe. She would inhale, I would inhale. She would exhale, I would exhale, because if she died, I wanted to die with her. That is the depth of love I had for my grandmother. My mother is an alcoholic. She's an alcoholic by her own admission. She was young when she had me, and she just wasn't done doing what it is she needed to do as an alcoholic woman. I didn't understand it then, but I understand it now. My mother is very well endowed. She believed in packing her pistol in her bosom. She's quirky like that. You know, and uh, the way she would communicate her needs and wants to my grandmother is she would call my grandmother up on the phone. I always knew who was on the other line because my grandmother would grip the receiver real tight and that little vein would pop out right in the center of her forehead. And my mother would make some incessant demand. My grandmother would look at the phone and say, absolutely not. There would go the phone. A short while later, my mom would pop over and just shoot out all the windows. Now, let's just say I didn't want what she had. You know what I mean? There are other cousins and uncles in my family that suffer from the disease of alcoholism. It is not why I'm an alcoholic. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous clearly explains to me that when I, not them, ingest alcohol into my system, it's going to set up a phenomenon of craving that will ensure I will do any and everything I have to do in order to get another one. The way the disease of alcoholism manifests in my family is through a lot of violence. A lot of the members favorite shooting, I favored stabbing tomato, tomato, really, you know. So, so it's safe to say that when we all get together, at some point, the police are going to be present. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, I'm just going to give you a holiday at my mom's house, okay? My mom is a big girl, and she's an excellent cook. My mother cooks from scratch. I don't, oh, hello, my friend. I don't, look, mom, help me, help me. Go into the light. Going to the light. <laughs> he had like little angel wings. <laughs> Look, the light's too bright. I must go. Okay. <laughs> little kids so rock. You know what I mean? I, uh, when my mom's cooking, I got to go. All right? But understand, you can get a meal at my mom's house, but you got to know when to go. Okay? The way you learn to determine that is by the music that's playing. I know you're going to feel me on this. So... I go, it's early afternoon, she's cooking, but she's drinking, it's okay. Because the music is upbeat. 
Diana Ross, the Supremes, you know what I mean, the Spinners, stuff like that. It's okay. The day goes on. She's still drinking. It's okay because the music is still upbeat, you know, the whispers, something like that. Okay, it's early evening. She's still drinking. The music is easing into Sam Cooke. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Okay, because when Sam Cooke is on, at this point, you want to start getting the plate and the foil. You want to set them next to each other. Because what happens is now she's drinking, the food's in the oven, it's evening, and now it's Billie Holiday. Oh, it's time to go. <laughs> you know what I mean? When she gets into Billie Holiday, she's been drinking, she's been thinking, now she's crying. She's only going to cry for a minute, then she's going to get pissed off and want to fight. You know, so I knew that I was going to get a plate, but it might come with a little something extra. I look back, it wasn't a good or bad thing, it's just the way it was at my mom's house. When I got into junior high, my friends were drinking and having a good time, I wanted to have a good time too. It was very simple in the beginning. But here's the thing, here's what happens to me when I take a drink of alcohol. When I take a drink of alcohol, I cease to care about you. Matter of fact, I don't care about you before I take a drink of alcohol. Once I take the drink of alcohol, I'm inclined to share with you that I don't care about you. So, so please resist the urge to pull me to the side and, and tell me how I have wronged you, how I have imposed on you, because I really, really can't be concerned. You know, and my friends would come to me with tear-stained faces, and they want to tell me everything I had done. Why? I didn't ask. You know, but they'd come to me, and, and, and they they tell me everything, and I look at them very intent-like, as if we were one. We weren't. I wasn't even present, you know. And, and uh, they would say everything they said, and I would pause, for effect mostly. And then I would say, well, that's unfortunate. It didn't matter, whatever they said. And what that meant is what it talks about in the big book. It talks about how we step on the toes of our fellows, and they retaliate seemingly without provocation. Now, not only am I mashing toes, but I'm wearing the highest of heels, at all times. So when they're talking to me, and I say that's unfortunate, that translates into I have far more important things to do. You knew the job was dangerous when you took it, you know? I remember a couple of years later, I am working at this department store, and at that time in my life, I believed never work any place you can't shop, you know? And um, when you work in retail, it's like 16 or 17 years old, when you work in retail, they'll schedule you on the weekends. Now, normally I'm okay with that, but this particular weekend I had a beach party to go to. Obviously the writing was on the wall. I knew I had to call in, but I can't just cold call. No, I got to get in a character. You know, so as I go home, I'm standing in front of my bathroom mirror. I can feel the sickness descend upon me so that by the time I go to lift the receiver, I could barely hold it because I was in a weakened condition. You know how we are. And... Um, I remember, I remember waiting for my boss to get on the phone, and he gets on the phone, and my heart was pounding because I knew I was about to lie, but I could barely hold the receiver because it's got to be authentic. And he got on the phone, and I got ready to tell this big story. It can never be simple. And he put me on hold. <gasps> oh, I was so insulted. What? Here, I take the time to come up with this story for you, and you put me on hold? I don't think so, pal. You know what I mean? And so... I marched off to the beach party. Now, I share that with you because when I look back over my drinking history, that's how I drank. I did what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. And I didn't stop until I was done doing what I wanted to do. 
And if you hung out with me, you were going to do what I wanted you to do, or you were going to get gone. I am a team player. My team. So I remember the following year, I was living with my godmother, and she had purchased her Mercedes. She had this car about six months. She was leaving to attend a conference in Washington. She did what any adult would do with their vehicle. She took her car, parked it in her driveway, took her keys, put them in the candy dish in her home. The only thing missing from that equation was me. And uh, as luck would have it, I was going to a club that night. What better way to go to a club than in a brand new Mercedes? I went upstairs and called my friend. I said, girl, we're taking the car. You know, and that whole day was spent with Candace and Self. How Self would be featured. How Self would debut. How Self would be presented. You know, and... uh, As I'm driving the car consumed with self, I ran into someone else's car. (laughs) Whoops. Let me tell you, my hat's off to the person that has a valid driver's license and insurance because it wasn't happening for me. I made like I was going to do the appropriate thing, pull over and exchange information. But I just told you it wasn't my car. I didn't have any information to exchange. And I had a sneaking suspicion they were going to want to arrest me. Now, clearly, that wasn't going to work because I was going to the club. So at this point, the whole front end of the car has a permanent grin. I drive it back into the driveway, take the keys, place them back in the candy dish, go upstairs, call my friend, and tell her we're taking a cab (laughs) because I was going to the club, you know. And I had a sneaking suspicion that once my godmother returned, she was going to be none too pleased about the car situation. She was, in fact, quite peeved. She had seen the movie Tough Love. I have never seen this movie. I don't desire to see this movie, but the effect it had on her was profound, I can assure you. After having seen this movie, she threw up a contract of things I was expected to do because I had wrecked her car. And I remember, you know, listening to her in horror read off what sounded like a thousand things. Now, mind you, it may have only been one, but when you're in self, one is far too many. She wanted me to do things like volunteer my time and give of myself to some charitable organization. I thought, oh, what an order. I can't go through with it. You know, and uh, I, I remember when she was talking to me, she was very agitated about the whole car thing. And, uh, you know, she was just going off. And I remember listening to her thinking, you have insurance. Why are you tripping? You know, that's alcoholism. That's alcoholism right there. It takes no account of reality. At no point does it occur to me that I have violated her trust, disrespected her home, destroyed her personal property. The only thing I can do in my head is wonder why she is coming down on me and she needs to turn it over. (laughs) You know? I remember uh, things getting a little tense in the household and me moving out shortly thereafter, but I I was working in Beverly Hills, and I had met a few people. And one, of them, one of them gave me an opportunity to work at a record label. When they hired me at this label, they hired me as a receptionist. But really, that was a technicality, because in my head, I felt, yes, technically, you hired me as a receptionist, but really, you're grooming me for a CEO. You know what I mean? You know how we are, just delusional. And, uh, you know, and, and again, I, I thought it could happen, and so... Uh, I started to get promoted. I ended up working in promotions for a number of years, and and it was a fabulous opportunity, worked with a lot of artists and 
successful projects and it was all grand and everyone was fabulous. But here's the thing. The more I got promoted, the more I got loaded. A member of my former home group, Barbara F., always says something that hits me to my core. She says, alcohol gave me the wings to fly and then it took away the sky. Alcohol allowed all my dreams to come true. Anything I may have thought I could have possibly wanted, alcohol allowed to manifest itself in my life as a reality. I am not here because I don't know what it's like to live your dreams. I am here because alcohol had to come first. If you would have encountered me during those years of my life, you would have thought I was absolutely the most self-assured, confident individual you had ever come across. But I will tell you that basically every day I felt like a little kid playing dress-up. It would not matter if I were clad from Chanel and head to toe. I felt like at any moment you were going to come to me, you were going to find out that my mother was an abusive parent who lived in South Central, and you were going to say to me, you are not one of us, you don't belong here, get out. I was afraid of that all the time. What ended up happening is I found out that my grandmother had passed. And you know, I, I told you what she meant to me, but I don't know if I really conveyed it. She was it for me. My grandmother was the end-all, be-all for me. She instilled in me solid value. She told me that I could have anything I wanted if I was willing to work for it. She was a decent woman. When I found out that she had passed, I don't recall having any emotion connected to that moment. When I look back over my drinking history, I don't recall having any emotion connected to anything because I was never present for what was happening. I was always so preoccupied with getting loaded and how you were going to piece up and work it out that I was just never there. I remember going home and looking at my stuff, and I don't know what the time frame was after I heard the news. It may have been a week to three weeks. It may have been a week to three months. I'm not sure. But I do remember the day when I was looking at my stuff and my stuff was no longer enough. That is a frightening place for an alcoholic that lives from the outside in. The way I was living, it was very important, the label I worked for, the artists on our roster, the parties I attended, who I knew, where I lived, what my title was. It was everything to me. If I were looking in my closet and the articles of clothing hanging in my closet were also featured in a magazine, I felt that is what made me equal to you. My friendships were not based on shared goals and common ambition. They were based on, you're cute, I'm cute, we need to hang out. No depth and weight needed, don't even bring it up. It was not until I came into Alcoholics Anonymous broken and devastated that I found that this is an inside job. I come from a world of smoke and mirrors. Talk so fast and dazzle them, they can't see what's going on. My disease told me that I was living in a world of make-believe and that I needed to get real. Now, I didn't know how to get real, but I knew how to get loaded. In the doctor's opinion, it talks about why we drink. And the reason I can remember it is because of how it resonates in my spirit. It says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. That the sensation is so elusive that although they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the truth from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. What that means for me, because that book has to be personal to me. I can't just read it and, and sit it down. Those words must come off that page and into my gut. What it says to me is that every time I take a drink, the sensation it produces is so superb 
so magnificent, bar none, that even though every time I take a drink is causing me chaos, confusion, insanity, jail, always a bonus. You know what I mean? Even though every time I take a drink, I know this is what's going to happen, that what is happening, the sensation is so unparalleled that I have to give it all I got. I got to go for broke. And then it's telling me that after a while, I'm not going to know what's real from what's not. Why? Because I am making decisions based on self. It tells me that my alcoholic life will become the only normal one. What that means for me is that something that may have been unacceptable or inconceivable or week or so prior is now par for the course. It's now all in a day's drink. Because for me, this disease is progressive in nature. So, you know, I had a decision to make. I no longer had a company backing me, and I had a habit that was incredibly expensive. And so I made a decision to market myself in exchange for a drink. And that means I stepped out there and I did everything I needed to do to get what I needed to have. I am under no illusion that if I stop doing what you've taught me to do here in Alcoholics Anonymous, that I will not walk back out there and do it all over again. I believe that the disease of alcoholism wants me in a room with a bottle in one hand and a gun in the other. It will never take me away from you when I am in love with you. It has got to make it your fault. It has got to make my case different. The disease of alcoholism will tell me that if we spin it like this, flip it like that, this time it'll be different. It wants me dead, and I do not play with it. It is amazing that I've had the experiences that I've had, and I have been able to remain sober through them. It is absolutely before the grace of God and strong sponsorship. I am under no illusion about that. You know, so at this point, I'm out there, and I'm doing everything that I do as an alcoholic woman unkept. And uh, I don't take care of myself when I'm out there. And so I became pregnant. Never would I do anything to jeopardize the life of an unborn child. Just absolutely never. But I'm not responsible when I drink. As a result of the way I was living, I made the decision to terminate that pregnancy. I am not going to share with you what my personal views are because that is an outside issue. I will share with you that I've been in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and I have heard people share from this podium that when they were little, they were left with individuals they should never have been left with. Things that should never have occurred happened. I would have been one of those types of parents. Because of the way I drink, I could not guarantee the safety and protection of a child. And I knew that. And so I made the decision to terminate that pregnancy. It was at that time that I learned through every radio station, every news station, every TV station, that a member of my family had been arrested for a child murder. And that person was my mother. There is going to come a time when everything in your life is going to stop and it's going to stand still, and that time came for me. I remember the precise moment. I remember when it happened, thinking that the way I was living right then would be the way I would live forever. I remember clearly thinking anything good, anything whole, anything of beauty, anything of worth, anything of value is no longer afforded to me. Forget about it. Let it go. I had always believed, once your destiny had been determined, that absolutely nothing could be done to change it. 
It was not until I came into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, broken and devastated, that I have found if you want what we have and you're willing to do what we do, your entire life can be reshaped. That is why I suit up and show up for Alcoholics Anonymous. It is just that simple. I went through that pregnancy as if I were not pregnant, and uh, I remember going into labor. I went into labor for 17 hours, and I gave birth to my daughter, Serenity. She was so beautiful. Everything in me cried out because she was so beautiful. And I remember holding her, and she kept shaking. She kept shaking because she was detoxing. If you want to know what it's like to live in hell, it's when you want to be done and you're not. When you want with everything in you to be surrendered and you are not, you have to go on to the bitter end. It talks about it. It talks about it and there is a solution. It says, if you are as seriously alcoholic as we are, we believe there is no middle of the road solution. We have but two alternatives. One is to go on to the bitter that means it doesn't taste good in blotting out our intolerable. What is intolerable? For me, intolerable means I just can't take it anymore. My skin is peeling off my body. Please help me. One is to go on to the bitter end, blotting out our intolerable existence, or the other is to accept spiritual help to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools. Let me tell you something. It is only simple when you're done. I know you sponsor people. I, I see at the meeting tonight, ooh, tonight? <laughs> you know what I mean? Or babies come to me and they say, you know, oh, I want you have. Uh-huh. And I say, well, I want you to read the doctor's opinion. You mean today? <laughs> Since we only have 24 hours, I'm, I'm thinking, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <clears throat> I remember my daughter being three, three days old when I left the hospital and I had to get busy coming to you. I had to get busy getting surrendered. And it involved no dignity and no grace. I told you the condition in which I came to you. I remember being four months sober in the recovery home and telling the director of the facility that I had a daughter. And I had never mentioned it to anyone before then because I didn't think I would ever get sober. And I didn't think I'd ever see her again. And I remember there were women there that had children a part of the facility. And I thought maybe they could show me how to be a mom. Maybe they could help me. Maybe they could show me how to be tender and to care for my daughter and to not harm her. Maybe you could show me. And so I went to the director and told her, and she got all excited. You have a daughter? Oh, my God, where is she? We got to get her. We got to bring her here. I said, I don't know. She gave me a number. It led to a series of numbers. And what they told me is that in the eyes of the law, I was no longer considered her parent that my parental rights had been terminated, and I was devastated. I can do anything when I'm drinking, repeatedly, ad infinitum, and not look back. But for me to have to live with what I have become without anything in me, I either want to take my life or take your life or accept spiritual help. That's the place that I was at. I remember finding out at like 10 in the morning and it just everything inside me broke. Everything inside me broke and I cried all day. And there were women that had found out what had happened and that night at the meeting there was a speaker and I don't know what he looked like because I was so broken I could not look up. I just looked at his shoes and cried. And the women would hug me and they would kiss my cheek and they would say, we love you, don't go. 
And I share that because, you know, I hear a lot of people talking about what they're going to get back when they get sober. You don't get everything back just because you get sober. So if that's a reservation, you may want to let it go. My daughter is 11 years old, and I have not seen her since she was three days old. But the reason I stay sober is because when she turns 18, if she ever wants to find me, I need to be sober. And I don't mean sitting in a chair dry, untreated. I mean sober, a life of dignity, value, integrity, self-respect. I can't have that out there. I am at my very best when I'm in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous. You are everything. Everything I do, everything I breathe is as a result of what you've given me. I remember being five and a half years sober, making amends to my mother. It took a long time because I just didn't think I would ever do it. And my sponsor at the time didn't push it because she could not push it. She told me that when the time comes, I would know it would be all I would think about. I said the time will never come. There have been so many unspeakable things that have happened to my brother and sister. I'm the eldest of three. At the hands of my mother, I would never share from a podium of Alcoholics Anonymous. I rarely share it with my friends. But the time did come. And I wrote to her, she's in prison, and uh, at the time she told me she was born again, as many people become when they go to prison. But, you know, I uh, <laughs> have no opinions on anything. Uh, you know, over the years we've written back and forth, and sometimes I would go months without opening her letters because I just couldn't. It would just be too painful. You know, there are years when I'm taking my cake and I just want to look in the front row and see my mom. I just want her to be here. You know, but that's not the hand I was dealt. It doesn't mean my case is different. It means that you've taught me to find my love elsewhere. You've taught me to suit up and show up, and I can give love to her. You know, uh, I found out almost a year ago now that she was diagnosed with lung cancer, and it was just heartbreaking. I just cried. I mean, I wept for me. I wept for her. I wept for my family. How sad is that to die behind prison walls, your body eaten from cancer? See, there but for the grace of God go I. It could have been me, but I came to you. It could have been me, but I came to you. I could have been behind prison walls with all the nickel and dime, penny any things I do out there, but I came into Alcoholics Anonymous surrendered. I wrote to her and I asked her for the first time if I could come and visit her. And I took my sister, and it was a devastating visit. I was not prepared for it. And uh, my sister just was sobbing through the whole thing, and she tried to get it together. And, and I remember wanting to fall apart, but I just kept thinking, I need to be strong for my sister right now. And when I get back to you, I would fall apart. And, uh, and it was hard. That's all I can tell you. It was, it was very hard. And... Four days after that, I had to fly out and give a talk in Atlanta, and I was there for five days, and I just didn't want to be there. I didn't want to come out of my hotel room. I didn't want to do anything. But you've taught me what to do in those situations. I called Clancy every day, you know, because I needed to remember what my primary purpose is. See, I don't just do this deal when it feels good. i got to do this deal under all conditions. And it was hard. It was hard. It was hard. And I got back, and I... After my Wednesday night meeting, I was on my way home, and I just fell apart. I couldn't drive my car. I had to pull over. You know, and I'm so very grateful that my sponsor is number two in my phone because I could not make any sense of numbers. I hit number two. It was close to 11 o'clock at night, and he answered the phone. 
And he was prepared for that call because he had been walking me through this. And he talked to me and he gave me clear, concise direction as to how to get my my car off that freeway 30 miles to my house because I didn't know. I couldn't think. I do have a God of my own understanding. And sometimes Clancy echoes the voice of my father. He is a conduit. He is a channel. And I got home and, uh, you know, I had to go through the process of forgiving her one more time because it was just such a devastating visit. I just learned so many things that implied that she's not born again. And, uh, you know, when it talks about grave and mental disorders, my mother is very mentally ill, and that's hard to deal with. And, uh, you know, interestingly enough, I'm preparing to go see her again. Uh, I was supposed to go in December, and I couldn't. I wasn't strong enough. I asked my sister. She said she will not go back. My sister's a normie, you know, and so her coping tools are very different, and I would never, I'm not even going to ask her. You know, I have to respect how she processes this. And uh, I just want to do it. Clancy says he wants to make sure that I have nothing left unsaid or undone. And he says by the time I go that they will have prepared me again. And I believe that. I believe you guys will have prepared me again. And so, um, you know, I want to talk to you about this breakup I went through because it's important. Because it changed me. It changed me significantly. When I was seven, actually I was thinking about it when I was sitting down. It was right after I had spoken here, so I, I had to just turn seven. And I met, you know, the person that I thought we were going to treasure all the happy destiny, blah, blah, blah. And so, uh, <laughs> no bitterness there. And so, anywho, it was an insane relationship. Uh, it was verbally and physically abusive. And I remember my sponsor at the time telling me, you are living drunk, you must get out of this relationship. And, you know, when you found your soulmate, there is no getting out, you know. And I would say, no, it's my soulmate, I can't leave. And uh, so everyone around me feared for my sobriety because of the way I was living. Talking Alcoholics Anonymous, but living like I'm on the streets when I would go home, you know. And it caused such an internal contradiction in my spirit that of course I reached the place I wanted to go to. So, you know, I would go to God in prayer. God, should I get out of this relationship? The police would come. Woo, not that sign. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, you know, what do you do in a relationship is going down the drain. We got engaged. And uh, we were, yeah, you know. <laughs> Those in a bad relationship, it's like, it could work, it could work. No, honey, it can't. You know, uh, we were engaged for six days, but they're long in the land of untreated alcoholism. And so, uh, you know, my former partner is a normie. And uh, so it didn't work. And, uh, and I was in a lot of pain. And so six days later, I got into another relationship. Because at this point, I'm running on pure ego. It needs to look good. I need to sound right. You know what I mean? And the women I sponsored are watching all of that. And it's really interesting because I had babies that I had sponsored for several years at that point, and I, I kept most of them through it, but I ended up just pretty much losing them because I was insane. And they thought I was going to get drunk. I thought I was going to get drunk, and everyone around me thought I was going to get drunk. It got to the point, the second relationship I got into was also verbally and physically abusive. But I'm suiting up and showing up and putting on suits at podiums of Alcoholics Anonymous. The reason I dress this way is because of my respect for Alcoholics Anonymous. But I am absolutely clear that it's not about what I'm wearing, it's about how I'm living. 
See, that's what that experience taught me, that I needed to get gut level, butt naked honest with what's really happening in order for me to stay here. It was so painful. I wanted to drink and I wanted to die. At eight years of sobriety, the obsession to drink came back. And it just scared me out of my mind because when I came to you, it was lifted. I had never known what it was like to have the obsession on. And I've heard people talk about it. And I would feel for them, but I had not experienced it until that period. For three weeks, I couldn't sleep. I would have drinking and drugging dreams. And I would just be delirious from sleep deprivation and from the way I was living. And finally, I just wanted to leave. You know, my friend Larry Thomas talks about training your feet. My feet are trained in Alcoholics Anonymous. It is through that that I was able to get through it. I had to come here. I would cry from beginning to end of a meeting. And I share that with you because the disease of alcoholism wanted me to leave you. I stayed. I didn't stay graciously, but I stayed. I define sobriety as free from anything that affects me from the neck up. That also means I don't drink near beer because I'm not near sober. You know, if you are sitting here and you're in a little jam, just stay with us. Hopefully the light of this program will outshine the darkness that you are in. Because a lot of people don't weather those storms. I am so eternally grateful. I'm going to share one thing and I'm sitting down. You know, I have had so many spiritual experiences. But one of the most beautiful ones for me is to look in the eyes of one of the ladies I sponsor over the flickering flame of a one-year candle. Having seen her come in this program, holding her head down, broken and devastated from the disease of alcoholism, watching her as she starts to walk in her own sense of dignity and self-respect through application of our principles, looking at her in the eye as she blows out that flickering one-year flame. That is a spiritual experience. I just believe this. If you want what we have, please be prepared to do what we do. Thank you.